Amen. We're going to talk today, continue our discussion on the Gospel of John. We've talked about John, the person, who he was, how he walked with the Lord, and how it changed him to know that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. And what does that mean for you? And on this journey, we're going to dig in really deep today, more into the historical and some of the literary devices John uses before we get into real seriously the the study of the theology. It's very important that when we take a text that we know really the background and really how the author is going to write it to us. There are some elements that John wants us to know before we bring it out, okay? So if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1. But we're going to take some moments to get into the historical setting. So thank you for being here and listening in for those online. But let's talk about the historical setting of the Gospel of John. First off is the Roman world. So John is in a Roman environment because Rome has basically taken over the world in that day. First century Roman cities, they experienced a unique and modernizing atmosphere. There's this big expansive road system the Roman Empire had brought uh, through their cultural expansion. There's the Greek language, which had spread, and commerce increased. Cities grew in number, and those once living in villages now had moved to the cities. And they were exposed to these Greco-Roman ideals. They had that art and that religion. There was games and uh, bathhouses and things like that. So it's a pretty diverse place of merchants that John would live in and grow up in, artisans, soldiers, slaves, people of all ethnicity. For the first time, women have attained wealth, education, and joined social clubs. There's this kind of a female liberation movement, and it's growing in power. And many women are even def- refusing to marry or remarry. That'll kind of help you in some of Paul's letters of why he says some of the things about women. Rome had installed gyms in every city and educated people in boxing and jumping and running, wrestling, archery, javelins, chariot races, all those competitive events you'd see kind of in the Olympics were very popular then. So kind of get those mental pictures in as you read through this of what environment you're in. Roman holidays had gladiator games and theater. Most of these stars, uh, slaves and prisoners were sentenced to capital punishment. So there is an extreme lust for blood. People enjoyed watching victims suffer, and they were sentenced to die in arenas uh, by animal attacks or through these theater reenactments, mythical stories and battles. And uh, criminals were often forced to kill each other blindfolded just for the pleasure of the crowd. So just, I mean, can you see that also today in the world we live in? There is a call for diversity. There's a call for uniformity. At the same time, we have the universal English language, the dollar, uh, the expanse of the Western Empire. That would have been Rome. Uh, there is a call for diversity, uh, much like in Rome, the uh, the accepting of all cultures, the accepting of all religions, yet we want to have uniformity. We all should agree to disagree on the same things, and we should all get along, and we all bow down to each other's gods, and no one stands apart. That that was very much in Rome. And then there's also this call of violence, uh, a lust for blood and entertainment. If you look at American entertainment today, you'll see the same thing, a huge lust for violence and blood. 
Um, I'm even appalled that right now we are watching uh, in this moment in time in U.S. history, we are media broadcasting people's murder, whether it be by the police or against the police. I mean, how many real murders now have you seen? It would be one thing to see fake murders in movies, which would be awful enough if we am just filling our lives with this. But now, um, just this last recent one, I just in my heart refused to watch it because it's like, no, this is really, a, I mean, you're telling me this man's about to be murdered. and Why would I want to watch that real murder? And uh, that was entertainment uh, in Rome's day. Not only that, slavery was widespread. Uh, it was evolving. About 20 to 50 percent, uh, some say, were slaves. Uh, sla- and that was more about that indentured. So while it was not quite like American slavery, there was definitely some levels uh, in there. It would be more like indentured servitude, like we understand. But there would be house servants, teachers, craftsmen, civil surgeons, soldiers, gladiators. They all could be slaves. They were still, though, the lowest class of ancient society. Considered non-persons, no voting rights, no property rights, uh, Jew or Gentile alike. You just had no rights. And so that was pretty common uh, in the ancient world, all right? So many people, almost half a society, there was no middle class. It was either upper class or lower class. Most people were slaves. Most people were slaves. So that's the Roman world. Now let's go on to the Jewish world. Jews believed that there was just one God. We know that. Uh, had a sense of this nationalistic pride. Uh, they had a, a expressed a relationship with God in the way they lived. They ultimately opposed the influence of Greek culture, Roman culture. Uh, there was various views of this, though. There was conservatives in the Jewishness, and there was liberal people who interpreted the law liberally in the time prior to Christ. And so it kind of threw uh, the Jewish culture into a crisis. There were those who were leading change, and there were those who were uh, coming against change. And you can see that in the Christian culture today. There are those who are advocating for change and liberalism and, and compromise. And there are those who are staying fundamentalists. And those would have been the Pharisees. So you can picture a few groups of people here. One, in the Jewish culture, would have the Pharisees. This school of thought would be the Back to the Bible revival movement, going to the traditions and, and instituting more traditions and more rules to ensure that our children don't come close to compromise in the world. So we're going to exclude ourselves. We're going to hide ourselves away. We're going to build a fence around our house to ensure we don't get anywhere close to failing God's law. So you can see that in the crisis that they had in the time with Rome instituting their ideals, with many people pushing reform and compromise and liberalism, they had a reverse course. And so they were that, that movement. Sadducees would have been those who were the social elite of their day, hiding within the temple, most of them paid off for that uh, liberal elitism they got. And then you'd find people like Herod the Great were just right out compromisers. Not Herod the Great, kind of a half Jew in himself, not a true Jew, uh, but claimed it. He'd become a puppet, Rome, and he was a beast of a man, evil in every sense of the word. And Rome used him to keep Israel in control. So Rome was desiring to rule on these principles of glory, of rank, of virtue, but they would use a complex, pagan, and often sexualized religion uh, to bring everybody into the same place, okay? So if you, let me just pause there and even further give you some more background of why Jesus is going to come on the stage like he did and why the apostles are going to have a trouble seeing him the way they do. If The history is that there was a corruption of the high priesthood. So you got all these schools of thought. 
But if you go into the time of the Maccabeans, which is the intertestament period, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. We don't have time today to go into all of that, but you can look up that time period. But the high priesthood, the high priest was the highest social status in Israel since Moses, all right? So he's in charge of all the temple worship. He had to be a descendant of Aaron. But as Greek culture through Alexander the Great was taking over the world, Israel fell under that dominion. And they often had, Alexander's generals often would form alliances with the priesthood. So now these Jews who were adopting this Hellenistic culture, this Greek culture, rose in power. So now Greeks began to install more liberal high priests. They would blaspheme the law. They instituted their own high priest on one on occasion, became a puppet priest, destroyed copies of Scripture, forbade circumcision, even sacrificed unclean animals on the altar. So you had a group of zealous Jews who would rebel and form something we call the Maccabean Revolt. That would be their family. And they brought the return of temple worship, okay? So now we've got the Maccabeans ruling and ruling the temple. They've kicked out the Greeks. However, they turn out to be bad guys too. Long story short, they end up having corruption in their own family, and now you have a movement called the Pharisees who become strict teachers of the law, enter Rome, and Rome has come in under General Pompey's proud victory. He comes in and he takes over, they take over uh, uh, Israel. They forcibly march into the very holy of holies. They commit sacrilege against the Jewish people. And now Rome allies, aligns with the corrupt descendants of the Maccabeans. Man in his own sense is continually evil and corrupt. So as Rome has taken over, put Herod the Great in, now Rome has bought off the high priesthood. The high priests and Herod are ruling at the pleasure of Rome. Rome now brings a strict military guy in, an imperial province. As soon as Herod the Great dies, they bring in Pontius Pilate. And so Pontius Pilate now rules after Herod the Great has died. Remember, Herod the Great's the guy that tried to kill the babies at Jesus' birth. He dies. Pontius Pilate, a military governor, comes in to keep order because the nation is continually in riot, and he begins to rule through other people to keep order. He takes Herod's sons. He makes them lesser uh, ethnarch or tetrarch. Tetrarchs were our Herod's sons, kind of like a a state governor or, or a local governor. And now, during the life of Christ, Herod's son Antipas, who's over Galilee, uh, and Philip, who is over the northeast of Galilee, they are keeping peace as clients of Rome, and they're taxing the people like crazy. And they'll keep taxing and building the country until about 39 AD, when Herod Antipas will have John the Baptist killed for slander, okay? And Herod Antipas would be the one who judges Jesus uh, at the trial of Pilate. So that's, that's the history, okay? So just look at the complexity of the day in which they lived. Now, my challenge to you is this. How do you see your day in comparison to this? How do you see corruption? How do you see government elitism? How do you see empowered people who are brought off, bought off and bribed? How do you see the enemy working all this out? Because it's important because John knows the culture he's living in. And John is writing to a new generation of Christians. Now, John is writing about uh, 85 A.D. in a place of Ephesus. So we're going to transition. Let's talk about the authorship of what and who John's writing to. So here's the, here's the, the, the history of Rome and, and Israel. 
and this uh, culture challenge, violence in the street, f- uh, feminism rising, slavery debated, um, uh, corruption in religious reform, a liberal movement of, 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 of Jews, a conservative movement of Jews, even a zealous, a zealot movement of Jews, which is those who are, are wanting uh, violence reform, okay? So you've got these different schools of thought and religious. You've got Rome coming in. Man, it's just a crazy, evil, dark time. And John has seen Jesus come and come through all of it. And now John is later on in years. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written, have been transmitted across the church. And John writes a new gospel. It's the same gospel, but he writes a different perspective. And he writes speaking to people who have lived through all of this, and now it's a new generation of believers, a new generation of Christians who didn't know Christ. And he's writing to them even in darker times when many Christians have been martyred, when Nero has come to power, Domitian has come to power, has exiled him himself on the island of Patmos later in his life. Uh, and, And it's just like, man, they killed the Christ. They've killed the apostles. Rome has gotten more evil. Gladiator games have gotten more bloody. Civil unrest has just increased. Uh, All these things are happening. And so now we find John humbly writing, silent to who he is. He's in the inner circle of Jesus. He's an eyewitness. He knows Palestinian geography. He knows Judaism of his day. And humbly he writes that I was just this guy Jesus loved. He doesn't want to steal the spotlight like we talked last week. doesn't want to steal the spotlight. And, and he writes at 85 A.D. after the destruction of the temple, after Peter the apostle has been martyred, after the reign of, of the Roman emperor Domitian in Ephesus, and his purpose is this. It's a universal teaching that Jesus Christ is Savior. He is about to try to reach the Jews and the Gentiles who are attracted to Judaism, and they're living in this Greco-Roman world, but they've got no temple. The temple's been destroyed. We don't know anybody that knew Jesus. They're living in a different world. They're, they've been exiled out of Israel. Israel has fallen. They just, Rome has come in and kicked everybody out, burned the city to the ground, and they're thinking, what in the world do we do now? So there's this heated debate in John's day, and he begins to write in chapter 20, verse 31 of John. He says, I'm writing this so that you will have life by the power of his name. And he's going to use things like the feasts, Jesus is the true vine, which is the real Israel. He's going to use covenant language to draw these Jews into this way, the way to God. He was going to talk about the tabernacle, the dwelling of God, all these special things for us to understand, even if there's no temple, even if we're in one of the darkest days of human history, there's a light that's shining. Even if we don't have a temple, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you, God's Spirit's going to dwell in you. He's going to talk about, and that's mostly Paul, but we're going to talk about that language that's going across that world uh, with John and the first century apostles. Let's talk about the literature. Let's change gears just a little bit, and we look at this book. You've got the history. You've got John's unique perspective writing into a day that was dark, using the context of his history to advance the gospel. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And now the literature. There's a lot of things that are in the Gospel of John that are not in the other Gospels, okay? There's a lot of things that are in the other Gospels that aren't in the Gospels, uh, uh, in the Gospel of John, and that, there's a reason for that, all right? So listen, listen to this. The, the Gospel 
uh, really means good news. It means good tidings. It's often that herald that would go before a king and say, hey, our king has been victorious. He's coming behind us. He's victory. He's victory. It's the good news, the herald of the kingdom. So it's good news about God's kingdom. That's what the gospel is. Jesus came preaching, repent, and believe in the kingdom of God. It wasn't just, he wasn't preaching, repent, and believe that I, that I uh, died on the cross. He hadn't died yet. He was preaching the kingdom of God. That would come through the cross, ultimately, but it's really about God's kingdom. And the synoptic gospels uh, all take this into account, all right? So the word synoptic is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It means uh, from the word sin, uh, S-Y-N, so synonymous or synonym means together with. Optic means seeing. So it means that these three gospels see together. They see very similar the same story. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar in language content and the order they're recorded. John's probably aware of the other three accounts. His readers are probably familiar with those three accounts as well. And John knows this. And so John doesn't have to repeat himself. He's writing independently, and he doesn't follow their sequence of events. Instead, while many of the, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, go kind of chronological, John is very much topical. All right? And let me talk to you about the, the, those topics. Okay, so Matthew, he's all about messianic fulfillment, about a prophesied king. Now, Matthew's a Jew, and he really writes to that Jewish audience like that, a messianic fulfillment. He's got the, uh, the, the birth narrative in there and showing you the fulfillment of Christ, and he's a coming king. Mark is very much on the servanthood. He's about the power, but also about the poverty of this obedient servant. All right, Luke, he's a Gentile. He's very much about Christ as a human for all humans. He he's, talks about Christ's humanity a lot. Definitely emphasizes him as the son of all men, the son of man, uh, which is the new Adam, right? Uh, the prophesied one who would be a man to take away the sins of the world. And that's very much Luke. John, on the other hand, takes a different approach. He's not, a prophes- not really focused on Jesus as a prophesied king or a servant or the man of all men, he really focuses on him as the son of God. Very much a cosmic, lofty uh, gospel, all right? So here, here, for instance, think about this. Not in John. Not in John are the parables, all right? Uh, Jesus doesn't teach about the kingdom of God in John. He doesn't talk about the end-time discourse on the Mount of Olives. He doesn't go to the Sermon on the Mount or the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't have Jesus' baptism. He doesn't have the Lord's Supper. He doesn't have the transfiguration. He doesn't have Jesus' temptation by Satan. Or he doesn't talk about Gethsemane. And interesting, he doesn't talk about demon exorcisms. He does, however, talk about Judas being uh, possessed by the devil. But those are not in John. He takes a whole different narrative here. And he adds some things, things that you wouldn't see in the synoptics. For instance, he talks about the vine and the branches. Those are unique. To John. He talks about external life, or eternal life, rather, uh, than the kingdom of God. He talks about the realized end times that are happening now. He does significant amount of time to talk about Jesus' last words to his disciples. He talks a lot about the interaction with John the Baptist, which we'll learn was uh, one of John's mentors. Jesus is the bread of heaven. He gets detailed into the upper room, even though he doesn't mention uh, and go about the uh, Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the, or sorry, the, uh, the Last Supper. He talks about the upper room, but he doesn't go into the things that the other apostles did. And we'll talk about wine in a few episodes. He talks about Satan 
as the antagonizer, antagonist, the bad guy in the story. There's some other distinctives, too. Jesus is unique. He's fully God and human in John's gospel. He's a Messiah from the Old Testament. He creates a new messianic community, uh, a new way to receive the covenant. Most uh, The first half of his narrative portrays Jesus by seven signs. He also uses seven I am statements and seven witnesses to support that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And that's actually what most of this series will be on, that John makes the case for Christ. He's going to use seven signs, seven statements, and seven witnesses, all in a proof text. If you've seen the movies like uh, uh, God's Not Dead or The Case for Christ, or read the book by Lee Strobel, Case for Christ, that's very much, it's a proof. I'm going to prove to you that he is who he says he is, and that's ultimately the point of John's gospel. And he's going to use the structure and the outline of his gospel to make that point. Instead of parables, he's going to use unique vocabulary and repetitive language, okay? So he's going to uh, shape. If you, As you read through uh, this week, I challenge you to read the next three chapters of John. As you read, he's going to show you the, 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 the life of Christ spaced out over three Passover journeys to Jerusalem. You're going to see that, and that'll mark three sections of, of John. But he's also going to give you kind of like this. The first part is going to be the intro, chapters 1. All right. Then you're going to enter into the book of the signs, which is going to be ultimately the public ministry of Christ. And he's going to show you the first sign of the wedding at Cana, the second sign of healing the nobleman's son. He's going to have a third sign of the lame man healed, a fourth sign uh, where he multiplies the loaves and fishes. And fifth, he's going to walk on some water. And he's going to go uh, on to give you the uh, feasts and uh, the graveside situation he's going to have with Lazarus and, and all these things. But then he's going to go to the private ministry. So the first section will be the book of signs. The second section is going to be called the book of exaltation, which is really his private ministry, his private ministry to his disciples. And he's going to pull them to dinner. He's going to talk to them about what discipleship means and put them in his school of ministry. He's going to pray for them. He's going to uh, confront their sin and, and the spirit of God upon him in the garden and pray God's will. He's going to show you through the trial and all of this purpose is going to culminate at the crucifixion, the burial and the resurrection. And then he'll end it with this thing called the epilogue, the ending in chapter 21. So it very much goes from public ministry and public issues. And John ends it with private ministry and private issues all the while talking about seven signs, seven statements and seven uh, witnesses. Okay. But let me, uh, before we wrap all this together and wrap it up, let me give you this, just to show you a few things. As you read, look for these words, okay? Because John, again, is wanting you to, it's kind of like this. If, if I was to uh, talk to you enough, I probably wouldn't know the way you speak. And sometimes we use words because we grew up that way, but sometimes we specifically use words to make a point. Uh, and we need to know the definitions of those words. So if I was to say, hey, uh, how are you feeling? And you would say, well, I'm not feeling well or I'm sick. Okay, well, define sick for me. What do you mean by sick? Do you just have a cough? Do you have the coronavirus? Are you got cancer? Like, we need to know the definition of what we're talking about to really interpret what the author's intent is, okay? So there's some frequency of words that John uses that are just astronomically different than the other gospels. So we don't want to read Matthew's interpretation 
into the book of John. So watch this. John uses the word faith or believe, pistis, faith. Uh, He uses it 98 times just in his gospel, while all the other synoptics use the word belief 34 times. Think about that. Almost triple. All right. So 98 times in his while 34 times in just the, in, in all the other three combined. Why do you think that is? Why do you think John uses the word believe or have faith in 98 times? Not only that, he uses the word truth 25 times just in his gospel, while all the others combined only use it seven. 25 versus all three using it seven. He uses the word remain, meno, remain. 40 times, while all the others combined use it 12. That word remain or abide, abide in me, and I abide in you, and my Father will abide. So 40 times is in John talk about remain or abide. All the others only use it 12. He even uses the word light, light, 23 times, where all the others combined only use it 15. He talks about the world or the cosmos, the world, the this otherly world. There's God's kingdom, and then there's the world. There's the the light of God and what he does, and then there's the darkness of the world. He uses that contrasting parallel or contrasting phrase 77 times, world, talking against the world or about the world and the sin of the world, 77 times, while all the other gospels only combined total is 14, 77 verses 14. So knowing things like this, Those are things you want to ultimately take note of. Go on. Sacrificial love. John talks about sacrificial love far more than relational love. 36 times he talks about agape love. 36 times sacrificial love. While all the other disciples or apostles and their gospels only mention it 26 times together, added together. So let's let's talk about this. Why do you think John chose these significant words, and why did he use them so many times where the other Gospels rarely use them or even barely even together, if you add them all up together, even come close to meeting John's use? The key words in here uh, are believe, witness, truth, and remain or abide. And for John, he uses, for instance, that remain or abide 40 times, and it's there to express the permanency of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the permanent relationship between the believer and the Son. Check out John 13 through 17. So he wants you to understand that this cosmic God, the Logos, if you read that that first part of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And we, you know, and, and he sees this cosmic uh, Logos, the, and we're going to talk about that next week, but this cosmic God who is existing in time and space, he sees him coming to abide, coming to remain. Who are we that you are mindful of us? You are out there with the cosmos and the stars. You are the infinite spoken word of God, and yet you became flesh, and you came to abide. You came to remain. You came to be in and with us and us and you. And so John uses that word abide, but he also uses that belief, that faith to say, guys, you must know the truth. And he, when he says believe and, and uh, 
have faith. And when he says true or truth more than the others, it's kind of like this. Uh, you may know me. You can read articles about me. You can go to our church website and learn about me. You can go to my Facebook. And you might know things about me. We might even have casual conversation. But those who have intimate relationship with me, those who have abided in my companionship, they actually know me. And John is going to elevate our thinking with Christ. He's coming to a very uh, head knowledge day when a group of believers, because of their historical context, John writes to them and uses these key words so they will know that a relationship or the knowledge of Christ does not just come from head knowledge or traditionalism or what you've always thought about reading Scripture. It comes through a knowledge of knowing Him relationally, abiding in Him, and having the truth. And truth is not something you know. For John, truth is going to be the person, the I Am, Jesus Christ. And that's not going to be easy. And John sets the stage with what you know and what you see. For instance, he says in first chapter of John, he says there was the light and there was the darkness. He says the darkness did not comprehend it. He's saying that cosmos, that world, the world that you live in is darkness. The world that he lives from is light. And you're not going to understand this. You're not going to know it through your darkness. You have got to come to the revelation of understanding through the knowledge of him when you abide in him. Now, that seems very lofty. We're going to get into all those things in the next coming weeks. But you've got to see why John uses this language. He believes that there are two worlds, a world of light, a world of darkness. He believes there's truth. And while Rome is advocating for truth and virtue, all right, He's going to be advocating for truth that comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So you live in two worlds. Look at your dark world. See what's going on around you in Rome and Judaism. There are those in the Pharisees who have think they have truth, but they don't know him, so therefore they don't know truth. There are those who are abiding in darkness, so they can't abide in the light. You see how this is all going to make sense with the words that he uses speaking to his specific audience and knowing the time and day he lives. So this is my challenge as we wrap this up. How do you, perhaps, I don't know, many of those listening online, you might be in America, you might be around the world, listen to this teaching. How do you know the historical context of your day, knowing the day that you live in? What words would you use to reach the audience that God has you to reach today? Would you use words like truth or abide? Perhaps today you'd use words like fear, speaking to the fear that's all over the world today. Maybe today you would use different words to people you know. You would repetitively uh, talk to that audience about specific things, about trust or the reliance on money or, or our, our reliance on relationships or power. Uh, we might talk about uh, individuality and, and what that means and and how we rely on our own ideals. We, we can talk about science, and we might mention those things. That John wants us as believers to, he's an evangelist, and he writes this, so you may believe. And my challenge to you today, as you apply this, what is your historical context that you live in, and how do you write your own gospel to a world today by how you live and what you say, what you post on Facebook? How are you... Uh, helping the world understand who Jesus Christ is to them. 
John comes to a dark world of truth, and they worry about all these things. He specifically uses these words. How do you specifically use your life, your words today? And I'll give you this challenge of how this might relate to your ministry. Paul says in Ephesians 5.16, he says, Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. When you share Christ, how do you keep in mind the timing and the context of your audience? What themes are you giving off with your life? How relevant are you to the day in which you live in? And how, like John, it's all about an intimate knowledge of Christ. And I pray for you today that you don't just know truth in the head or through paper or, or you know, just through intellect, but you know the truth because you know the person, Jesus Christ. I pray today you have a revelation of the light of God in the midst of a dark time. As you look at the world around you and how much it parallels what John went through, I pray that this study, as you continue in it, in the next few weeks, it is about to inspire you. And you're going to come out of this thing knowing really who Jesus is. We bless you today in Jesus' name.